0: real
1: up your glasses and sing indeed bobby dylan robert Allen zimmerman summer days from the 2001 release love and theft duluth pride of duluth minnesota one of my very favorite bob dylan albums which was ironically released on september 11th, mm-hmm. 2001 dear friends thank you for joining us this is our third recording of jackman radio from the lovely hills well the lovely bottom of Mount Monadnock in Jeffrey, New Hampshire. Very uh, excited about tonight's episode. We're doing our first interview, um, in-studio interview, with a very interesting fellow. Uh, author, teacher, man of many talents. Mr. Artist. Yep, artist. Poet. Poet. Soon-to-be poet laureate. Traveler Panthers. to China. Mr. Rob Huckins, who um, was one of Michael and I's favorite high school history teachers that we had at Conan High School, all those years ago. And economics. Yes, economics, modern world history, you name it. Hawkins covered it, and we learned about it. So thank you for joining us, Rob. Well, we're happy for, to have thanks you here. For having me. And uh, yeah, we're just gonna uh, we're gonna spend uh, the time talking about some of uh, Rob's writings, some of his travels. He uh, went on a trip to China a couple was that a couple years ago. Yeah, twenty thirteen. Twenty thirteen and um overall just some cool stuff so mike i know you had some things you wanted to touch on you're going to talk about bob dylan uh his new album of covers of frank sinatra standards and obviously we'll get to some current events we'll uh talk about the pressing issues of the day and of course we will touch on house of cards season three which is dropping this weekend claire i'm a good president (laughs) i serve my country (laughs) we're murderers frank we're survivors meacham get the car in the lube (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so uh, more than that later, but uh, yeah, um, <laughs> Rob and I are huge Bob Dylan fans. Um, Absolutely, I've been a I've been a Dylan fanatic since seventh grade um, when I was driving the car with my old man, and I heard like a Rolling Stone. Mm-hmm. That was the very first Dylan song that I was like conscious of. And I said, "Dad, what is this?" You know, like I, I was it just the song. Just I felt like I went on for like twenty minutes. It did. I, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the yeah. original take, maybe. Yeah. yeah he said, oh, that, that's Bob Dylan, man. Like a Rolling Stone," and. I, for, after that, it was like, just like a woman, I want you. Greatest hits, then into... Things have all, changed. All the nuggets. And mm. uh, um, what's, what's your history with Bob Dylan? When did, you come, when did you have that come to Dylan moment in your life?
2: I, honestly, I was a very, very late bloomer to uh, Dylan. And I say that because I think at my age, uh, a lot of people... I was born in 1971. And I think a lot of people at that time, Dylan was just past that whole counterculture thing. He was well beyond that. He was beyond Woodstock. And I think by that point, he was now entering the, the 70s phase of his career, which is my favorite phase of his career. But I think a lot of people by that point had already kind of pushed him off. He was already kind of that guy. I mean, Bruce Springsteen came along and he was already being called the new Dylan. And right, new a couple d- years later. And the that, new Dylan right? was 32 years old. So <laughs> I, I think when you've got people coming along and you, d- you hadn't even had a chance to actually become a middle-aged guy. Yeah. You know, I mean- so I, for me, I, I didn't, it, growing up in the 80s, I didn't like Dylan. Uh, most of my friends didn't like Dylan. He was kind of viewed as a curiosity. And you knew about his old stuff, but because you couldn't help it, it was just that iconic. But as far as anything relevant at that time, we weren't paying attention to him. But then, probably during the 90s, I started to pay attention a little bit. I had a few friends that really, really liked him. Um, and I resisted quite a bit. And then I heard Love and Theft. That was the first album that I heard. And um, I was blown away. I I really, it just, I think part of it was I was ready to hear it. It was a great album. It came together. I I saw him in concert that year. So you're talking late 20s? That I really, and then what I did is once that happened, then I became just kind of semi-obsessed for about four or five years. I I mean, I think I listened to every single, I've heard every album he's ever done. I went back and listened to all the old stuff. I've got different favorites now. So that's, i really—that's more than
1: than I can say. And, I, and if I, I be, remember correctly, Love and Theft dropped on September 11th of yes, 2001. it did. Because I remember we were really psyched about it, and then that yeah. happened. Well, yeah. I remember uh, 9/11, obviously, uh, listening to the song "Sugar Baby" off of that album, mm-hmm. and talking on the phone with a friend, and it was like it, it was surreal because the events of that day, and then it was that afternoon listening to that song. It was very somber, and uh, you know, music uh, goes along with a lot of personal memories and events that happen in this world. So. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think Dylan kind of went away for a couple years after that motorcycle accident in the in 1967. Uh, yeah. retreated up to New York. Yeah, and nobody really heard from him much until I think the early 70s or something like that. 70s, well, he did Nashville Skyline in '69, I think. Yeah. Which was his, his quote-unquote country album.
2: That's right, and he uh, he and that's if you listen to that album, the vocals on that album are unlike anything that he's ever done to the point where if you listen to it, you would to an untrained ear, you wouldn't even know it was him. And I think to me that's one of the things that during that time period, there's a lot of... You talk about uh, Like a Rolling Stone. There's so much uh, unearthed gems that he has. And I think that time period that you see, once you get past kind of the 60s time period where he was about as big as you were going to be, oh, yeah. and then he kind of disappeared... And he's not even at Woodstock, even though it was right in his backyard. He yeah, didn't. He didn't show be, up at the Woodstock concert. Be right. to be there. Yeah, he he did some really interesting stuff. He came out with some cover songs. Uh, he did some other different versions. He worked with the band a lot, which at that time they weren't the band, but um, they became essentially his band.
1: Right.
2: And then he went on this Rolling Thunder tour uh, that he did in the mid '70s, which I I still think is my probably my favorite album that he's ever done. You can get the bootleg version now, and it's it's excellent.
1: They've officially released the bootleg, and they have done that with, with uh, yeah. a lot of his material. Yeah, features, the Rolling right? Thunder yeah.
2: review is, is a fantastic album. It's just a very free freewheeling. Joan Baez is there. Um, there's just a bunch of people that he had that just... It, it was like this roaming kind of musical carnival. Literally put up signs in, in different towns that they went to and stapled signs to town halls and telephone poles and things like that, just trying to get people to come out. Yeah, they brought you know, in a lot of uh, guests for that one. They, oh yeah. on the, they just went out on the road and they, oh, just, absolutely. they just went. So, so in a oh sense,
1: yeah. maybe Dylan was hungry again to recapture. I so.
2: And I think um, it was he, he was wearing makeup. If you look back at that time period, he, he was putting a lot of uh, different makeup on. He was doing some really interesting. If you see the video of it, which is rare. You can see it on YouTube now, but the, the video version is, is pretty interesting.
1: It kind of reminds me of uh, after the Beatles, Paul McCartney formed Wings a few years later. And his first tour, they literally went to, to colleges mm-hmm. throughout the UK and would call ahead and say, this band is coming. We're going to charge three, $3 to come see him." and Paul was hungry again to make original music and to revive his career and to shed to kind of shed that Beatle image so maybe in a sense Dylan was looking to kind of not re- maybe rebrand, but kind of just recapture the magic of what he what he used to be, and then show people that he's moving in a different direction, and, and his career is capable of having many acts. Another the next act, oh, yeah. well, so D- to speak. Dylan's al- has always reinvented himself, and I, I think he kind of rejected the uh, label as a spokesperson for the '60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he well, wanted th- to go away from that, this and- this album of Sinatra covers. I mean, right there, man, it, it, this, it, it's perfect, Dylan. It's saying, I don't really give a rats what anyone thinks. This is what I'm gonna do. Here it is. Yeah, he said, "I'm, I'm, I'm not covering these songs. I'm uncovering them." <laughs> that's,
2: I think that's a great. That's a pretty accurate statement. I, I think. I mean, when you go back to the whole idea of reinvention, and I think what makes Dylan a, a genius, and I really think he is when it comes to songwriting and music, is that he re- was reinventing himself before reinventing was even a cool thing to do. I mean, he was yeah. he was leaving behind whatever phase he was in. He left that phase behind before people even had a chance to understand what it was. I mean, He he never wore out a phase. And so I think when you're seeing Hmm. what what I look at is his current phase, I think, really started in the mid-90s. And and when he put out uh, Time Out of Mind, which is my favorite Dylan album of all time. And when he put that out, then he started the string of really almost getting back to very 1920s, 1930s style kind of Americana rock music. Before it was even called rock music, but it was that yeah. very old-time sound. But if you listen to any album that he's had out, really from Time Out of Mind on, you probably don't really have any sign of where the, where it comes from. In other words, you could play that album. You could play any of these albums at any time, and it would sound like it was at home. It, right. They're really timeless.
1: Or like it does today. Right, exactly. <clears throat> oh, no. did, uh, time Out of Mind, uh, Modern Times, Yes. Uh, Love and Theft, of course. Um, Life is Hard. Was that another
2: one? he for did? Uh, it was a song, Life is Hard, that was off of uh, Together Through Life. Together
1: Through Life, yeah. Is, is that a, when the deal, the deal goes down yes. is off of that album? Mm-hmm. And, I would... I, and I know Dylan, to a lot of people, is like an elusive, mysterious figure. I have a funny anecdote. I was listening to Katie Siegel, who was on Married with Children and on Sons of Anarchy. She was actually a singer uh, before she was an actress, and she was one of Bob Dylan's backup singers back in the day. Huh. And she recalled the story to Howard Stern about Dylan asking her out on a date And she went on. She she went. She said. (laughs) She said that everybody was a little creeped out by Bob Dylan. Yeah. A little, because because of that mysterious factor, and they didn't really know what to make of him. But I just thought that that story was funny because when you think of Dylan, you don't really think in terms of you know just a normal guy saying asking a woman out to dinner. No. You know, even if it's one of his backup singers. So you know, obviously in in Howard Stern fashion, you know, he tried to (laughs) elicit more details about it, but. Katie said, ultimately, Dylan was a nice guy, but uh, definitely definitely strange and um, gave oh. gave off a very uh, aloof vibe to everybody. You could be on stage with mm. Dylan for a number of dates and have never even spoken to him oh, or yeah. had a, really a conversation of any depth with him.
2: Well, I think the Joan Baez accounts, if you, if you see uh, Martin Scorsese's movie that he made about Dylan, No Direction Home, which exclusively focuses on a period of time in the 60s, but During that time period, that's when Bob Dylan hooked up with Joan Baez in terms of performing. And she is renowned in that film for saying, and I think she's got a great outlook on it, but she looks back and says, there's just no way you were going to be able to plan with him. That when you were on stage with him, she goes, sometimes he would turn his back to the audience. Mm -hmm. She goes, sometimes he was incredibly charming and gracious. Other times she goes, he would start out in a different key and you were just expected to go along with it. She Mm -hmm. goes, sometimes he wouldn't speak to you.
1: That's, and this, and yeah. this is a
2: guy who she was romantically involved with yeah. for off and on for a long
1: time. Had children with, right? Did, uh, no, they no, never had no, any kids. Sarah, Sarah Dillon. Sarah, no. yeah. okay. That's Jacob Dillon's mom, right? Yeah, that's right. Sarah. Yeah. yeah.
2: And um, so I think, you know, you, it's funny you mentioned, you know, the whole idea about him reinventing himself. And I think that's one more thing where during that time period, he could have been a folk singer for life. True. And he didn't do it. And, in fact, he gave up on it before people were ready to give up on him. Yeah, and oh, and, and Joan Baez will say, you'll see in interviews, she still goes to... Um. Protest rallies and, and human rights uh, events and things, and people will still ask her, "Was well, he going to show up?" And she says, "You know, you idiots. He hasn't shown up for thirty years. He's <laughs> yeah, not. He, he's not yeah, showing he's, up tonight." He's going to show up
1: in the Chrysler commercial. He, 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 I was going to say he did that Car- commercial. Gonna he's not. He's, he's going to come in a Chrysler. No. He's going to show up in a Victoria's Secret commercial.
2: Well, I think. I, I think when you th- you think about ex- kind of eccentric behavior too, I think you look at uh, Carrie Fisher, you know, of, of Princess Leia fame in Star Wars. But when she, <laughs> she one of her funny stories is that she talks about meeting Bob Dylan in the seventies late 70s and she says that uh, there was a party in new york and all of a sudden dylan comes in he's wearing these gigantic sunglasses and a huge winter parka and she says because of course you never know when a solar eclipse is going to break out or a snowstorm
3: <laughs> right
2: and so she said, you know she was just I, I thought it was a perfect way to put that he was eccentric without trying and then with no point sometimes but exactly. that was just I, I just think that's who he is and yeah. You know, and I don't think anybody really probably knows him except for his family and maybe some friends, but
1: I think there's a lot of mystique and he 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 likes he likes the mystique. Plays it's like that. a JD Salinger kind of thing and and what you were saying about um him, you know, being up one moment or down or or, mm. or happy or ignoring you or maybe wanting to, to to mess around um two quick Dylan stories then we'll talk about your 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 book American Dreamland. Mm. Um but I know we well, we can talk about Dylan as long as we we could talk about <laughs> Dylan all night. But um my friend Justin saw Bob Dylan. Uh, I think this was at a show when he was doing his ballpark tour. Oh yes, with Willie Nelson. That's right. And uh, so Justin saw him at a ballpark, <laughs> and after the show, he had uh, he had a copy of one of his albums and a sharpie, and he wanted to try and get Dylan to sign it. Mm. So he uh, um, he went to near where the tour bus was, and uh, he actually saw Dylan walking with, a, you know, a cadre of people. Like An entourage. The, oh yeah, the band, you know, mm-hmm. security, security. Big, big security <laughs> guards. And he was probably within, I don't know, 10, 5, 10 feet of Bob Dylan. And he said, you know, and he was 18 years old or something at the time. And he said, oh, Bob, you know, great show. Do you think you could sign this album for me? And Dylan, Dylan looks over at him, chewing on a cigar, and he just goes, fuck you, I don't know you. <laughs> <laughs> Story. He's, you know, I I
2: think I can tell you, and I know we're kind of ahead of where you want to get with the book that I wrote, but I've seen virtually every YouTube video there is to see of him being interviewed, and, and I can tell you that um, in my obsessive viewing of his interviews for a period of months, that there's some really, really cool gems out there of him being interviewed in some really unorthodox situations and yeah. where he, he kind of goes the other way. Like when you talk about... Getting an autograph. Then there's other interviews where he's. I think the one I saw was in probably 1986, where he's coming out of wherever he is, and he's got these kids, and he's talking to them about uh, what he called heavy metal at the time. Oh yeah, he's like, I've seen that one. Yeah.
1: yeah, he's just out in like a small town somewhere, yeah. or he or he did a show or shot a video. Yeah, and and there's, there's probably a, there's a, a dozen people. There's like and almost 20 people just. He's asking if they him.
2: like Rat. He's like really and personable. <laughs> he says, "Do you like Dio?" and Iron Maiden and he's just rattling off every group because right. I, I think at the, I get the sense when I'm listening maybe to maybe he's trolling well I, I don't <laughs> think he was fully aware of the music scene like he, he never usually is he is and he isn't and I think yeah. at that time he kind of yeah. I, I think that was the music popular music of choice for a lot of kids at that time and I think he was trying to connect as best he could I think one of the best interviews I ever heard or saw of him is a series on YouTube you can look it up and of all things it's on MTV it was in 1984 and it was Martha Quinn one of the original VJs, when they used to call him VJs, and there's a five-part interview where they they break it up into five different segments. It, it might be the best Dylan interview I've seen in terms of he they cover. She gets so much out of him, and then really? he, t- he talks about he talks about how he doesn't like the Eagles, and that, which I thought was interesting. <laughs> he would say that. Well, and he said, yeah. you know, the point being, he says the songs sound great, but he goes, "There's no space. There's no real." You, just, you know exactly what you're going to hear and I thought that was kind of interesting. He talks about religion he talks about um, a lot of things and there's even some I think unintentional things. One of the he, he, at the same time he's talking about uh, icons and how he could imagine himself as you know Elvis but not John Lennon which I thought was pretty interesting and at the time there's this gigantic sound that sounds just like a gunshot and you can see it and it goes off in the background and you can see him jump and turn and then he kind of keeps on talking and Everything kind of breaks down for about ten seconds, and then they get back to talking. <laughs> and nobody addresses it, but they just keep on moving. you think, at some point, he must have thought, you know, to shoot me. Yeah, is this going to yeah. happen to me? And and yeah. for him, you, you, I think you guys realize this, but for him, George Harrison, John Lennon, the people like that, they're all contemporaries of his.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, he
2: remembers these people. He when he talks about things oh. now. He's he's talking about a time no, period that, that most people would never traveling. Wilburys no. he was
1: in a band with George Harrison. Absolutely. They were bandmates, cutting amazing yeah. music. And he wasn't
2: even the best guy in the group. Except,
1: oh, Who I Bob? Know, such a testament to no. that band. No, no, Jeff Lynne was. Sorry, no. I'm going to I'm going to give it to Jeff Lynne as in terms of production and and I talent. Mean, That's to just be, like, to be like, a well they, to be a fly on the wall mm-hmm. at, at, during oh. that man. And, then, well, and his Tom le- Petty
2: was the young guy in the band at the <laughs> time.
1: He was. What, what, what was the album Dylan released in 2013, I believe it was, with... Um, Modern Times? No. That was 06. Oh. It was... uh well, way off. Duquesne, <laughs> Liss- <a> du- <laughs> du- Duquesne Whistle <laughs> Oh, was that, that was Tempest. 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 He had was... a song called, I think, Roll on John, yeah, which a, was a to John Lennon. It's the closing track on the album. Yeah. And, uh,
2: There's also a 15-minute song about the, about the Titanic on the album, Titanic. which I actually like. But which
1: plays fast and loose with the facts, but so did James Cameron. Leonardo DiCaprio's in the song. He is, yeah. Yeah, with exactly. a sketchbook, <laughs> that's great. That's funny. And I had a video too for, for Duquesne Whistle, where there's a, like a yeah. guy dressed as Gene Simmons. It's a kiss. very interesting it's, video. It's an interesting. He makes yeah. interesting videos. Oh yeah. And um, another point I wanted to make about Dylan sure. too is he only gives about maybe two interviews every decade, yeah. and his most recent big interview was with AARP. <laughs> he and, knows his audience. He, he well he <laughs> sought, he sought out the guy from AARP. His people yes. did, and they said we want Bob Dylan wants to talk mm-hmm. to you about his album and about what he's doing yeah, about And about his back pains. And they're like. Come <laughs> <laughs> Come on, are you putting this on? And, yeah, yeah it was, that's a great interview. I don't know if you've read it. Or, it is, an, and
2: a, and it's a sincere interview. Which uh, I think that's why I respect him. Is he? It's not a lark. I mean, I think he really no. did it as an as a sincere interview that he gave. And I think he was very. He gave a speech. I think it was a couple weeks ago um, for the Music Cares.
1: Oh, with Jimmy Carter, was there. Yes,
2: and that speech is a reminder, I think. If if anybody, I would love to see a video version. I haven't seen a video version, but I've read the the text of the speech, and I think to me that's, if you want to know where he's coming from, that's it. It's all there.
1: It (laughs) really is. He he, he cites Aaron Neville as his favorite singer of all time. That's right who did that early 90s cover of Everybody Plays the Fool, Mm -hmm. I think. And among other songs, of course. But that's interesting. interesting. I mean, you know, Dylan, I think he talks about Mavis Staples and he talks about um, other artists that influenced him.
2: I think it's interesting because he he gives a lot of um, attention to people that I think otherwise people wouldn't have imagined. Like when you think about him talking about Chuck Berry and saying, you know, I don't think anybody's going to approach that. Or he talks about the Rolling Stones and says, well... I think they pretty much wrapped it up that, you know, if, if a rock band's going to be big, they're pretty much it. And he talks about a lot of different people like that. He mentions Alicia Keys. Oh, he loves lo- Alicia Keys. A, 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 he'll name drop, the, you know, talking about Leonardo DiCaprio in a Titanic song because he thinks it just seems foolish to talk about the Titanic and not mention Leo DiCaprio. I mean, who, I love, gee, I nobody else it. does that. It's so good, you know? So it's stuff like that that I think it makes him... It, people are still fascinated. There was a, an artist back in the 60s, a painter, And I can't remember his name, but his famous statement was that he never, you know, Dylan had the luxury of never having to go to the audience. The audience always came and sought him out. And I think if there's anything that that typifies what he was, it's that, that he never had to seek out an audience. They always came to whatever he was doing. I mean, he made two albums that were uh, essentially gospel songs. And when he became a born again Christian, I mean, this Uh, is a guy who's, yeah, slow train coming. Yeah. Everybody's going to serve some. That's right.
1: I love that song.
2: Great stuff. I mean, I think it's underrated. You know, Bono of U2 thinks that one of his best albums is Shot of Love, which I think most Dylan fans would kind of put that, Discard. In, the, put that in the bargain bin and say, oh, that was interesting, but let's move on to something else.
1: Where's so, the yeah. Dylan album that he made that was intentionally bad to say F you to the record label? I think it was in the 70s, I yeah. think. And he's like, I'm going to make this album. It's going to be bad.
2: I think he <laughs> never specified, I've never seen anything to have him specify which one it was, but he said that he has purposely made albums that were not great.
1: What's, what's the video, yeah, Mike? So we were watching with Elvis where Dylan was just clearly bombed? Oh, tight connection. Yeah, and he's at, dancing at, at the end. He's like he's got he, these he, backup singers yeah. and he's doing these dance moves and he, he just looks. He can he, bust a move. He looks like he's just been drinking for like, <laughs> you know. And he's like, hey, let's get together and make these moves. <laughs> the other Dylan oh, so story good. that's in that's in the uh, polar opposite of the one I told you from my friend Justin. Um, my cousin Brian met Bob Dylan up in Portland, Maine, in 2003 2004. Um, actually outside of the venue hmm. So my cousin goes to the show Huge Dylan fan I've seen Dylan with him And uh, leaves the show You know, is out in the parking lot And Bob has decided to come out Into the parking lot When all the fans are leaving <laughs> And people, you know people Was he dressed? <laughs> I think he had the hood He usually does the, the yeah, hoodie I've seen I walked, He walked past me one time He's wearing a closet
2: a hip-hop fan He really is
1: I think, well Masson Anonymous has hip-hop covers yeah. of, of some of his songs Early
2: 90s He went through what they call The hoodie years <laughs> So, <laughs> That's what his studio text called. The I Hudi like that. Years. Oh, I, yeah. I, I He was listening to it. Public Enemy and people
1: like that. Of course he was. That's awesome. Well, I mean, Subterranean Homesick Blues yeah. is the original rap song. That's right. It in is. Wow, he spits it. So, so <laughs> my cousin becomes face to face with Bob Dylan, and he goes, you know, wow, Bob, you know, <laughs> great to meet you, you know, and all this, you know, whatever you would say to Bob Dylan. I mean, there's even articles about what you would say to Bob Dylan if you met him. He just goes, you know, nice show and all this, and he turns to my cousin. And he goes. What are you doing here? He's like, I came to see you, Bob. You know, great show. He's like, you should be at home watching Garth Brooks or Britney Spears. <laughs> and that, you know, that's it. Yeah. That, was, that, that, was that's, that was his encounter with, encounter, with Bob Dylan. I think, I think that's so. probably
2: where he was at at the time. So but.
1: so, so um, you, you had a book that came out, I believe, in 2012 um, called American Dreamland. Yeah, 2010. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That, was that long ago?
2: Yeah, it was, it's been a while.
1: Oh, man. It's been a while. So. That was five years ago. Yeah, it's coming up
2: on five years. It was November of that year, and I had written it uh, probably 2008, 2009. I finished it. it. It was very, very quick. I wrote it in probably five months. Wow. And then really? I edited it during the summer. I put it away for a while. Uh, it ended up being from the time I started it. I started it around October, November of 2008, and then within almost exactly two years it came out a self-published book, which I didn't plan on that timetable. I just wrote it and put it away. I didn't do a lot with it. I would every once in a while I take it out and I'd edit it. Um,
0: yeah,
2: you know, and I, I chopped it down quite a bit. It was up. It was probably about one hundred twenty thousand words when I wrote it. I got it down to about I think it's one hundred five. But yeah, it was. It was really one of those. I've never been able to write anything as quickly since.
1: And, yeah, uh, it's interesting because I I feel like you um you cold a lot of. Uh, news sources and actual press Mm. clippings from um, you know Bob Dylan and George W. Bush well you want to give an overview about what the book's about yeah really really cool idea
2: yeah the the novel and it is a novel it's a a work of fiction but it it takes place really we're actually now past the time that it took place in but it was it was imagining a world where uh, President Bush is impeached and he's removed from office which we've never seen happen in American history and he goes back to his ranch in Texas and kind of just becomes a recluse. Uh, Bob Dylan is the other protagonist in the, the novel who essentially is kind of going through a time period where he's being critically reviled and ends up essentially just retiring from music. And in fact, there's a scene in the book where he essentially fires the band in a nice way, but just makes the decision that he's going to fire the band. And um, And the two of them end up kind of living very similar lives away from each other. And then they get brought together because of work that Dylan is doing at the time, which is drawing and painting portraits of famous celebrities. And in the book I had him, he was, you know, doing paintings of Madonna's children and right. he was doing, he did he did one of George Harrison. Yep. You know, and so he's trying to do all these different things and he did one of Alan Greenspan. And, and so, uh, <laughs> so there's all these, I try to put a lot, put some interesting thing you know, kind of touchstones that people could actually identify with. And then of course it comes up where Bush's daughters say, well, wow, you know, your portrait is sitting in the White House in some closet somewhere because you were thrown out of office. So there's really, you know, he's not getting anything. He's not getting a pension. He's not getting mean, he's, he's thrown out. He's been sacked. He's been sacked. And so... Um, if only. Which maybe yes. yeah, maybe I wish, personally. Well, yeah. and, and I think what ends up happening, and what I tried to get across in the book, was that the interesting part was you have two very seemingly different characters. And they, in the book, they are characters who come together. And because of this painting job that essentially Bush's daughters arrange gets them to come together they come together in County Bunkport up in Maine yeah yeah, that's a nice touch so George Sr. and his wife Uh, they make a cameo there's a very good uh, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when Barbara and George Sr. meet Meet
1: Dylan. Yeah, and, when he shows up. Yeah, he right. shows make up. Make the devil music. Because yeah. you know, H.W. during Dylan's counterculture years of the '60s, he was, he was the establishment. Yeah, that, that, he represented the Republican establishment, and here's this figure, right. Bob Dylan, showing up at Kenny Bunkport. Reminds me of my Coming. grandfather, who was born in 1912. Um, mm. On a Christmas one year, um, I got a, a Bob Dylan CD, and mm. he's like, "Oh, where'd you get for Christmas?" And I handed it to him. He's like. Oh, I wish I could get some Bob Dylan. I mean, even even now, he had he didn't even have any idea who Bob Dylan was. Right. Dylan was you like know, a new thing to for him. Forty years later, he yeah. I do remember that scene from the book. So he shows up to Kenny Bunkport. Yeah, and he greets he, Barbara and H.W. before and W shows up.
2: Bush is—he's just gone for a run. Of course, he's—you know—he's an obsessive runner. I'm a runner, flight,
1: running from the truth.
2: Clearing Bush, and you know—he's
1: <laughs> got to run from accountability.
2: Yeah, and so <laughs> he comes back, and and uh, that's when they meet. And so there's some pivotal scenes, in, in in the book, and and one of the things I tried to get across was that they're, they come from such different backgrounds. But when it came down to where they generationally were. Very close. I mean, Bush was born in 46. 46. Dylan was born in 41. Mm-hmm. Huh. You're talking about very close generational people. And I would argue that they probably weren't a heck of a lot different when it comes to politics. I think, I think Bush is probably not, uh, I think Dylan, excuse me, is not quite as... Liberals, I think, people like to make him out to be. I don't I think so either. And, and I don't think Bush is as conservative as a lot of conservatives would like. Well, so he was they, a cheerleader at Yale. So I mean, there you go. Yeah,
1: he liked his coat back in the day, yeah. too. We know that. And
2: there is there is one fictional character in the book, uh, Alan Melville. He's the manager. He's Dylan's manager. And he was kind of a, a character that I created. You had to have somebody. A
1: composite character.
2: You had to have somebody in this book that was going to. Because these two people would not get together on their own. So you had to have some character that was going to kind of be a way for the reader to kind of tap into the story. And say, okay, these two people are kind of living different lives, but at least you get this guy. He's normal. And he was his manager. And he's, I kind of based him on some, he's like a cross between, I don't know, like Don Johnson from Miami Vice and, you know, some, <laughs> like, I don't know, I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, it's hard to imagine, but Don Johnson stood out. But I'm trying to think of Don Johnson with a pompadour and maybe some, you know, saddle shoes or something. A little you know, bit that's, more bling bling too? Yeah, yeah. Flashy kind of, yeah, you know. Exactly. Yeah, maybe with some Lyle Lovett thrown in there or something, but yeah, I think yeah. that's kind of where I see him yeah. going. But it was an interesting. And all the articles, there, you know, when you go through the book, each chapter, a lot of the chapters break with a, essentially, a news story, and all those news stories are original stories. They weren't. I didn't take them from anything. They were all ones that I wrote to try to give some sort of um, context to what was happening. So you get. Their version, then you'd get this kind of maybe a page or two pages of, of a news story that I would write, that I created. And, and it was trying to kind of fill in some of the gaps without doing that in the actual story. Because the last thing you want to do in a novel is, is bore the reader with 20 pages of exposition about how did he get here? Right. Of and it it and it being, so yeah. let's, let's give you a two page article at the beginning. This knocks it out. You're done. It sets it off. Let's <laughs> move on to him being at the ranch. Let's get into the real stuff. Joan Baez makes a cameo in the book.
1: Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's she's in it towards about, the end. About maybe them maybe reconciling. Yeah, and, yeah. So uh, it's what's what's interesting. What's the name of the
2: book? American Dreamland.
1: Yeah. One of my favorite. Really cool. Um, one. one of my favorite scenes in that book um, is I, I think they're 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 at a waffle house or they're at a <laughs> uh, a, a uh, what's uh, no. um... What's the other cracker, cracker the cracker barrel, barrel. Yes. and uh, someone this woman recognizes George Bush and <laughs> yeah. and it's kind of a human moment it kind of humanizes W the book yeah, humanized that's what W a I little bit away for from me. that book with yeah you Bush know, was it, a little more human in my eyes because they, they, they didn't want W to be the politician and the they well, wanted Jeb, Jeb yeah. To, yeah and I think I don't want to say W was reluctant but maybe he wasn't as as uh, able to properly be scripted and, and play that role Well, I
2: think in the scene in the book is of him, you know, them eating, you know, because they're on this road trip back from Maine because Bush wants to drive on the road. He doesn't want to fly like he's been flying his whole life. So Dylan says, all right, we'll do this. And this manager goes with him and the whole plan is kind of idiotic in some ways. But, you know, they go back and of course, they're stopping at these Cracker Barrels. And that scene is where he essentially pawns him, Bush pawns himself off as a Bush impersonator. Right. Because the woman says, well, you look just like him. He says, yeah, I get that a lot. And pieces i do impersonations and you know dylan's hiding over in the fabric section or whatever he was doing at the yeah, time talking out with some shades or something yeah, yeah. and of course the, the manager <laughs> melville this alan melville character is is just panicking at the thought of them being recognized and you know because there's an auto accident involved in this whole thing where you know technically they had fled the scene of an accident so right. that's kind of on the highway of, yeah yeah, so that's always interesting. Bush was the driver, so, you know, make of it what you will.
1: Bush running away from responsibility? No, would <laughs> so, never happened. A car accident? No, but the, the whole premise of Bob Dylan and George Bush taking a road trip from Kennebunkport, Maine, to Texas... Is uh just such a cool idea? Is that where no, they I end just, up, aren't they going to visit the daughters and the grandchildren or something in they Baltimore?
2: Do, they do stop in Baltimore. Baltimore, they, yeah. They visit, they visit uh, Jenna, Jenna Hager, Jenna Hager, uh, and her husband. Yes, who you know, and I had there was some research research involved. It's not a work of nonfiction, but is
1: she a teacher, or the other one is Barbara's a teacher.
2: Uh, Jenna is. Jenna is, I think, although now she's done stuff for the today show and she's, yeah. she's interviewed Clinton, uh, Bill Clinton. She's, she's done some interviews like that, but at the time she was going to be a teacher and yeah. you know, and so I was trying, I was trying to think of you're dealing with a story that has some very contemporary kind of connections, but at the same time you want to make this a novel that somebody could pick up 10 years from now and read and be entertained. Sure. And I think what I usually got from people, you know, if, if people talked about it, it, was either they really read it because they thought it was going to be a skewering of George W. Bush, which I don't think it was. It wasn't. It wasn't I, I, I didn't he, take no, that away at all. I think he comes out that. pretty positive. Um, and I actually got a lot on that. There was a I, I did a book signing up in uh, Berlin, New Hampshire, of all places. One of the best ones I ever had. I had a lot of people that ended up coming. And there were a couple people that actually protested the event. Really? Because they were angry about the the whole George Bush thing. The Bush angle. Yeah, and they thought it was.
1: Well, you were too too uh, were... softball. With no, George the Bush, other way. Or...
2: They thought the fact that you're impeaching him, and and, oh, I, and there oh. were people that I tried to talk to, and I said, I think you have to realize, first of all, if anybody's actually upset about your book, you've done something well.
1: Well, that's good. You're reaching so never... someone, and also this is fiction because in your world, in the world of this book, the media actually did their job. And realize that Iraq was lies and it was bullshit and we need to impeach Bush.
2: And in the book, I don't... (laughs) So that never happened. (laughs) Well, in the the book, I don't even spend a lot of time getting into the causes of why he was impeached because it wasn't really important. Well,
1: you can use your own imagination. Yeah, and I think that's that's great. that's for the reader to And for me, when I did, like I just said to you, that's, in my mind, in the book, he was impeached because he was exposed for Iraq. Yes. Which, which, if the media actually did their job Mm -hmm. during the build-up to that, instead of being cheerleaders... Those were impeachable offenses yeah, that Bush committed. He wouldn't have all those dead troops and yeah. you know, impeachable offenses, in my in my opinion.
2: Well, and I think in the book I tried to address that with at the end. Essentially, it's an interview that he does for HBO, where he goes on, and I kind of when I wrote it, I wrote it from the standpoint of. I had to think, okay, how, am I, how are you going to end something like this? Because at some point you have to have an end point for this. It's kind yeah. of cool that they get together and do this road trip. Oh, but then awesome. at some point you've got, to, you've got to wrap this up and make it satisfying. And so I, I thought, well, you know, what would he do if this was a real situation? Well, he'd probably do some HBO interview. And it'd have to be HBO or Showtime. It wouldn't be just Matt Lauer sitting down with him or something. That'd be, <laughs> no, that'd be too much. No. <laughs> hey, he'd have to do something where you really have to seek it out. And, and I, I essentially wrote it as a, as a, as a Q&A. And I thought, I, wanna, I wrote it as if I was interviewing Bush. That's awesome. You know, and, and, so, and I really tried to, I think the biggest challenge and uh, of getting a book like that is that you are writing a work of fiction, which gives you incredible freedom to write whatever you want. The only caveat to that is that you are actually writing about people that people actually have heard and they know and they really like. I had a lot of Dylan fans. I had a lot of Bob Dylan websites that picked up the book. And yeah, kind of talked I remember about that. It. And so I think what you end up getting into is you have to make this book very legitimate in the sense that when people read it, you want them to think, yes, that's exactly how they would sound. The way I did that was I watched a lot of interviews. I spent a lot of time on YouTube watching George W. Bush interviews. I have seen hours of George W. Bush interviews, and I can tell you I'm a little bit better for it, but I also saw tons and tons of Bob Dylan interviews, and what The trick with Dylan Bush was easier because he was contemporary at the time. The trick with Dylan was you were trying to write about, you were trying to make him, you were trying to have the dialogue sound as if he would sound now. And the problem is he doesn't give a whole lot of interviews now. So what you had to do is you had to take, you couldn't take '60s Dylan or '70s Dylan. You had to say, okay, how would he sound in the 2000s? There's not a whole lot out there for that. Yeah, and and, and, and very. So I, I watched uh, the sixty minutes interview that he did. I think With it was Ed Bradley. When, yeah, it was oh, around yeah. two thousand four. That, that's a really good. That's interview. a really good one. I watched uh, some of the other ones that he had done lately, and I tried to take some of his older ones and then kind of dial it up to maybe two thousand five and think, okay, how would he sound now? And what I also read send? a lot of interviews. I read a lot of books. I read quite a few. I don't. There's not too many Dylan books I didn't read. I read uh, probably three or four George Bush books, biographies. Um, did you
1: read Behind the Shades? Yes, did? I did read that one. I need to read that one. I've heard it was really good. It's
2: it's a very good one. Um, there's quite a few out there. Some some the problem with I call it Dylanology is really what it yeah. is. <laughs> it, it's such a it's almost like a niche market these days because he is such an he, he's almost I think someday we're going to be talking about Prince this way. I think we're already talk, there are some artists that I think are approaching that level of they're they're just so prolific. That give them some time, and the, and we're going to be referring to them. But the, the the deal with Dylan is that he came along at the perfect time. If you take Dylan ten years later, I don't think it's the same thing. If he comes, if Dylan comes in 1953, it's not going to happen. He wouldn't have caught
1: fire and yet. He catch yeah. he
2: hits the right time. Oh. Joan Baez helped him a lot. Uh, he, you know, the band helped him a lot. I think the oh, band yeah. kind of revived him. I think later on he hooks up with uh, Daniel Lanois. Oh yeah, and I oh think, mercy, and, and, and I think time, time out, of out of mind. mind yeah. Did he do time out of mind, or did he go he did. on Jack
1: Frost pseudonym for that one? No, he uh, Jack Frost.
2: The first Jack Frost album was Love and Theft. The um, time out of mind was a Daniel Lanois, and in the Chronicles, he tells a funny story when he meets him for Oh Mercy, because Lanois did that one too, and he was the U two producer. He did the Joshua Tree and some other ones, but Lanois was he really got him to go to some places I don't think Dylan would have on yeah. his own. And a lot of it was because he talks about it in the book, which is bizarre that you know Bono came by his house, which I think is weird in its, of itself, and finds these <laughs> finds these Dylan lyrics in his room somewhere i don 't know what Bono's doing just leafing around somebody 's house, and He's shows yeah. up he 's got a case of Guinness, oh, and of course so, he does. you know i thought'd you know we could talk about music and you know, as Dylan says, Bono knows knows more about America than Americans do, and I would agree with him. But <laughs> the point is that he has he really got him to he read these songs and said, "You've got to do something with these." And Dylan says, "Well, you know, I don't know." He says, "They're they're just me fooling around," and and he got him. He cold. he hooked yeah, him up. You with, just
1: fooling around most of the time. Yeah, that's just him fooling around. that's, yeah. one, of his, that's one of my I mean, favorite. Come Dylan on, that's songs. a fantastic song.
2: And um, if you look at the bootleg version of that, is a Telltale Signs, which is an album that came out in two thousand eight, which is a double album. And he has versions of those songs from the 80s and 90s on that album. The double, and most of the time, is, that version is phenomenal. The one on Telltale Signs is phenomenal.
1: So That's listeners, very, if uh, they want to get your book, American Dreamland, where can they go? Amazon? Where can where can they order yeah, it and it's, find it's, it?
2: it? It's on all, any online um, publisher, any online distributor will have it. It's so Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Uh, you can get it through iUniverse. Um, but I, I, Amazon's probably your best bet.
1: I was very so. entertained by the book and, and uh, enjoyed it quite a bit. And uh, Yeah, it was just cool to think of. It, it is. These two guys and, uh, coming together. We're going to take a little break here, and we're going to do uh, one little uh, another Dylan nod and uh, play something off of his new album, Shadows in the Night. Uh, this track is called Stay With Me, and we hope you enjoy it. To Jackman Radio for our next part of the show. Very good. I was back in Philly in 2008 when the Black Panthers were being videotaped by the FBI. Or at at a rally I was at. That scene in Forrest Gump. I'm sorry, I ruined your Panther Party. (laughs) But uh, that was that was uh, Public Enemy, right? That we were just Mm -hmm. coming back to. Before that, we played um, "Stay With Me" by Bob Dylan off his new effort, "Shadows in the Night." And I just want to make the point that I think his vocals on that song. And this entire album are very sweet and they sound great. So the argument that Dylan can't sing, doesn't have a good voice, shove off. Listen to that.
2: Well, I, I have, I've thought for a long time, and I'll defend this as long as I can, that uh, when you start talking about Bob Dylan's vocals, that you could get into an argument of who can sing. I mean, it, it, and by that, I mean everybody's a vocalist, they're not a singer.
1: Well, for me, it's about his delivery, too. I mean, it's about how he exactly. how he gets the songs across and, you know, not... Because everyone can, can say, oh, this person has a bad voice or this person has a good voice. Um, it's his delivery, you know, whether it's something like Subterranean, Homesick Blues, um, or something off his new album. Uh, it's how it's delivered.
2: Well, I think, too, when you, you see this new one where, I mean, you said it before about him uncovering the songs rather than covering them. That's great. I think it's a, it's a great statement because he's really taking these American classics and he's reimagining them in his own form. So I don't, to me, a cover version, when you do a cover song, you're, you're trying to do a version that evokes the original, that gives it respect, but you're still trying to make it your own. He's going beyond that. And I think when you look at the vocals on the album, they're su- and I say surprisingly, they're surprisingly good. The guy's in his seventh decade. He's and not I think broken true. as bad as he no. was on, on, on
1: uh, even in the eight, like under, under the uh, red sky. Well, the think, vocals are not great on that stuff. Well, I think
2: you read, and if you read in Chronicles, I mean, he talks about it's the most fascinating part of the book to me. He talks about the moment where he made a vocal decision to go and sing a different way. And he's on tour with Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and he, just, and he he's tries to sing at one point, and nothing comes out. And he realizes at that, that point that something has happened and so he recovers and he moves on, but he makes a decision in the, and he talks about it in that chapter where he decides that he's going to sing a much different way.
1: He's gonna, but, he's going re, he reinvent, to reinvents yeah. his own songs uh, I mean, exactly. that, that was probably during the beginning of the never-ending tour it was 88 89, 90 and yeah. um, you know when you see Dylan
2: which was inspired by a singer that he saw in some coffee house and just realized this is what I got to do. And so you think about it, the guy that probably inspired him doesn't even know he did
1: probably dead I mean you know. who knows <laughs> I mean, and, yeah, and
2: exactly he, it <laughs> made him carry on and I think that I I really like the new album but I guess it's tough for me because I'm very open to whatever he does I mean I liked his 2009 Christmas album too so oh I mean, god
1: it must be Santa come yeah. on the video so where he has the you're beard you're talking
2: to a, a person who's yeah. pretty open to whatever he does but I think <laughs> To me, it's it's. I think a lot of people look at a Christmas album, and I think this isn't quite in that vein. But I think a lot of people say, "What is he? You know, Frank Sinatra yeah, songs? Is, what this is a novelty? Yeah. What is wrong with like? Is he making fun of it? Is sometimes no. It's it's not ironic. It's not. I think he re- truly thinks Sinatra is up in kind of the Mount Rushmore of of pop music, and he is. And I think he's trying to take these really great pop songs and put them into his own packaging, and I think it works really. I think it works really, really well.
1: And but. I know we touched. Uh, we did mention the Wallflowers. Jacob. Well, we mentioned Jacob Dylan, and I know Rob, you're a fan of the Wallflowers. I actually kind of got more into their music after um, listening to some of the songs you posted on Facebook. He hmm. had that. Um, is it called Country and Girls? What's the album that Jacob Dylan did solo? Oh, Women in Country. Women in Country. Yeah. Man, you listen to that. T Bone Burnett. And Jacob Dylan is isn't Dillon? just like a throwaway no. name. I'm Bob Dylan's son. No, this no. guy's got talent.
2: Absolutely. Talent
1: not. was passed down from Bob to Jacob. And and I know Jacob was interviewed about it. You know, what's your old man like? What's your relationship like? And he said, My dad's uh, tender and very loving towards mm-hmm. me. I've always had a good relationship with him.
2: If you read some of the interviews that, that Jacob Dylan gives, he's much more, I think, revealing than his father is. And he's a, he's a lot more. I think kind of mainstream. Accessible. Too. Yeah, he's much more accessible. And he. All, and I think people have to remember that he came up at a time where he, he was in a much different world than his father. And I think right. coming along, there were some inevitable comparisons, but I think he really tried to strike out and he ended up becoming much more successful in terms of his chart success and, yeah. and, and pop and, success and than his father was, ever did. And
1: it true when he was starting out, he shielded his identity? And, and still yeah. got a record deal. Yep, he based did based on his talent. And I mean, that's Julian awesome. Lennon did the same thing that's in the eighties. Awesome. Because Dylan,
2: I think that you can get away with it because the last name is not exactly, it's not exactly unique. I mean, the name Dylan is fairly, is fairly common. So I think if you come out with that name and, I, I think he looks all like his father. I think more so now than he ever did. But I think when you see him perform, I've seen them in concert and. The comparison is is pretty interesting because I think as as Jacob Dylan gets older, he inevitably becomes a lot more like his he's dad. He's probably
1: forty five now, right? He's, yeah, he's in his late forties. Yeah.
2: But I, I really, he's got some, he's he's his own guy. He's got some very right. interesting views. I think, in fact, probably him being Dylan's son probably hurt him in some ways because I think he really ended up having to always be. He'll never be seen positively by some people. Oh, because it's, it's of to that.
1: say with the children of the Beatles. I mean, exactly. Mike and I have seen Sean Lennon twice, mm-hmm. and we met. I met Sean Lennon. I actually gave him a hug because I was just so enamored. And uh, looking at him, like, wow, there's this John Lennon. Like, I'm looking at John Lennon. And he's got that talent, And, that he, raw... and he's... Sean Lennon is so talented. I know he's half Yoko. You can say what you will about that. But um, Sean released an album in 06 called Friendly Fire. And you just... I was just blown away by that album, man. On Capitol blown, Records. Blown away by it. And... It's not just he's the son of John Lennon. He's, you know, Sean Lennon, and he's got the chops. And I think the same applies to Jacob Dylan.
2: Well, I think if... um... Oh,
1: yeah, Dead Meat. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there's there's one of the songs. This is the opening track, uh, which uh, he created a music video for with Dario Argento's daughter. Yeah. Aja Argento. It's like art rock. Yeah, he, he learned how to sword fight for this video, too. Really? Yeah. Dude, he's got... And he had you know, Paul hundreds Simon, of millions of dollars. He had Paul Simon's son playing the album, too. Harper Simon. Harper Simon played on the album. Yep.
2: Well, that's where I think being the son of an icon must be helpful because you do it the connections you have. You think about. If you're like, born with a man. Well, Jacob Dylan talks about Johnny Cash giving him a gift at his bar mitzvah. He talks right. about. And I think when you've got Johnny Cash showing up, giving you a bar mitzvah gift, you probably have got a little bit of an advantage somewhere. Yeah. But I also think that in the case of Jacob Dylan, I mean, he's very much kind of a. a Confidant of uh, Donnie Harrison, which yes. is George Harrison's
1: it, son. They recorded "Give Me Some Truth" together. Correct. Great. John Con- and so I think the great. they probably oh, have.
2: Yeah. I th- I'm and that and George Harrison was uh, was Dylan's favorite Beatle. I mean, he oh, he, he loved was, George. He was they, a George. They were both. Bro- he bro was enamored
1: by him though too, because yeah. D- yeah. Dylan was actually seen clandestinely filming yes. George Harrison during yeah. they, the traveling Woodbury. They had sessions. a whole thing going on. They loved. They, they loved. And each in and "Living in the Material World" documentary, Olivia described. Um, some of George's his French his lifelong friendships with his contemporaries is having almost romantic qualities. Oh, I think like they were yeah. you know they were they were so in awe of each other's talent, mm-hmm. and then also at the same level of fame and money and fortune and all that. But then at the same time, they could just be two guys in a room together, not a Beatle, not Bob Dylan, but just two guys who genuinely like each other and enjoy each other's company. And I think
2: from what I've read, and you know, I, like I said, I've read quite a few Dylan books, but um, his his regard for Harrison was almost fan-like in the sense that even though they were contemporaries, I think he always felt like... I mean, I think probably for Dylan, Harrison and the Beatles reached a level that Dylan was never going to reach in terms of pop success. And if you, if you think about Dylan's albums, he's never really made... He's not going to be known for great albums. I think his, his son, Jacob, says this in interviews, that he's not known for great recordings. You don't, you don't pull up Dylan albums and say, oh, listen to this great recording. You pull up Beatles albums for great recordings. The whole recordings album. Because... Yeah, I mean, Dylan produces his own stuff, and I think, quite honestly, sometimes it shows for better or for worse. He he's his own guy. I think he produces his own stuff. He doesn't have anybody telling him what to make. He's essentially like a self-starting artist, except hmm. just a really wealthy one and one who's got a huge name. But that's kind of what he's doing. He's he's putting out his own stuff. He's doing what
1: he wants to do. And you know what? Forty Columbia hours Records later?
2: puts out whatever he. I mean, Columbia who,
1: recording artist Bob Dylan. <laughs> whoever
2: uh, there was no other record company in the world. There's no other artist that would. Approach their record company with "I'm going to cover Sinatra songs," and they're going to say, "Sure, no problem." Yeah, right. some of these
1: songs, yeah. no problem. Some of these songs are 50, 60 years old. You know? I
2: mean, I think Bob Dylan could probably put out a, a cover album of Weird Al Yankovic songs, and I think he probably <laughs> would get it released. <laughs>
3: I, I really that's believe great. that.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's no. And, and you, you, you said earlier, it's not, it's not to be ironic. He really no. views uh, Sinatra up there on the pantheon of the greats, and he's not trying to, to, to compare himself. He's like, you shouldn't even put Bob Dylan and Frank Sinatra in the same sentence. So. And he's still, like you were talking about the speech you know, earlier that he gave, and um, he still talks about his idols and who mm-hmm. he looks up to and who inspired him. So, you know, him being humble like that is, uh, is still very much there. So, that's, uh, that's our take on Bob Dylan. <laughs> and we do have to say happy birthday, George Harrison. George, George would be 72 today yeah. if he was still with us. That's right. Unfortunately, he shuffled off at 58 in uh, November of 2001. Uh, my favorite Beatle. George is George is my my favorite beatle. Mine too. I mean, Mine's John. I mean, you 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 come out of the Let It Be session sixty nine seventy. You know he's got all that material from All Things Must Pass. He already has that, and then just unleashes a, a triple album, right? Mm. Triple album, and just you know, My Sweet Lord, Beware of Darkness. Have pity. Time, I'd have with you any time. I'd have you any time with Dylan. <laughs> I'd have you any time, the, the song co-written I, with Dylan. And it, it, if not for you. And to have spent yeah, the previous yeah, 10 years coming. in the shadow yeah. of the, the greatest songwriting partnership in the history of mankind, in mm-hmm. my opinion, and then to unleash those speaks volumes about George Harrison's uh, songmanship and his ability to write songs. So uh, I wish George was still with us, but uh, happy birthday, George Harrison. So we're going to shift topics around here. Um, a couple years ago, um, as we mentioned before, Rob is a social studies teacher, uh, history teacher. Made a trip uh, over to China, for uh, how long was that? A couple of weeks? Or? Yeah, it was a
2: two-week exchange program where we were essentially living at another school, and um, you know, then we're taken around to see some of the more prominent sites in the country.
1: So um, they obviously with exchange they were brought here to New Hampshire for a time as well. Well, and we you were went, their
2: host at the time I was teaching. It was it's kind of an interesting story because at the time I was teaching at Hollis Brookline High School. I'm not there anymore, but we were kind of guests of Merrimack High School, which is where I'm now teaching. Um, And so we went as guests of the Merrimack High School program. And so to make a long story short, we end up going. um, They had already had this relationship set up. And so we end up going for two weeks. It's a program that the school runs every year. Um, It's awesome. It's a great... Thing And, you, you know, it, with a country like the size of China, the scope of it, I think, is something that most Americans probably can't identify with because, it, you know, staying in Beijing alone, which if you just get to Beijing and China, it's not bad, but you're not really seeing everything. We went to Xi'an. We went to Tianjin, which is a city about two hours south of Beijing. So we really got to see a lot of stuff. I think that if you just kind of did the standard Olympic tour, 08, Beijing, I don't think you'd get because... You wouldn't get that experience. No, Xi'an is... is By Beijingers, Xi'an is considered a backwoods city, and it's a city of 9 million people. And I want to point out... That's that's that's
1: backwoods. So it's the the Winchester of China?
2: (laughs) (laughs) You said that, not me. um,
1: Sorry, Winchester folks.
2: But um, I, I think... When you think about a country of that massive size, I mean, the U.S. is third in the world in population, but we're third by a long shot. We're not even close. 340 million? Oh. 310, yeah, 12 we don't even on on touch, we, we don't but even touch those
1: numbers. What's over China? China, China India, India, and
2: China are a billion plus. Billion so, and a half, right? Yeah.
1: each.
2: Yeah. And China's gotten rid of their one child. Yeah, their uh, family policies. Oh, right, they did get rid of that. They're they're letting they're lightening that up. So I think what you're seeing now is is you could see China become even bigger. But when we were there. Wow. I, we got. It was interesting to, to be in the school for the week. I thought initially that was going to be the part of the trip that I thought, well, you know, this will be okay. But then we can get to the Great Wall and see all the other stuff. I ended up really enjoying the school the now, most.
1: What. Um what what kind of sense did you pick up about what they teach their children, high school age, about America? How and in your view, how's America portrayed by China? Because it's government controlled it to is. the max. There's, I mean, I know our public schools are funded by our government here, and you say what you will about that, but I mean, China.
2: It's very open, though. Yeah. Uh,
1: how China, would you say a standard Chinese student, sixteen years old, views the United States?
2: I think they view it very positively. What I found was, now granted, you have to keep in mind, they're very good at. Um, having guests. And so they would probably treat visitors from the US far better than they would treat people even in their own country. Their own I mean, people. I can tell you that I mean, I can give you examples of this, but the the point of it is that when I was there, there was nothing that would not be done to try to make your stay really good. So, I think the problem with that is that sometimes when we were in the school, I wasn't sure what we were seeing if that was what happens all the time. I can tell you in the research that I did when I wrote my travel log and I wrote it, I think, within two months after I had the trip. I just spent every day. I got to the point I was just writing every single day about this China trip, and I ended up putting out very, very quickly. Um, but one of the things that I went back and researched and then tried to connect to my own experience was their view of education in general. And, and the, the Chinese system is a very um, regimented system in which the U.S., I think, is portrayed positively, but I think it's almost not even a, a prominent spot in their educational curriculum. In other words, they go in... They're learning math, they're learning science, they're learning English, they're learning a lot of stuff. And they test people out at several levels. So when they get to what we would call middle school age, a lot of these guys are getting tested out. So by the time you get to the high school age, you know, sophomore, junior, senior year, you're talking they're probably left with maybe 20 to 30 percent of the original population they had. I mean, there's really no Mm -hmm. special education to speak of. I mean, that that really doesn't exist. We went to a, a middle school there and the subject of special education came up and the principal's response was and i don't think he was being coy was simply we don't have children with special needs we,
1: we don't have that no we have none of that here. correct we, we don't have that and that's <laughs> the re- that and here. the
2: response is is just
1: he was being honest <laughs> yeah
2: he, he was being very honest and i think wow. some people in our party felt like it, he was maybe being a little coy Putting I, you on, yeah. I didn't think he w- i think he was simply stating fact because when <sighs> i was there i can tell you that we walked around a lot um they didn't hide the pollution. We definitely saw that. I took photos of that, um, and I saw. Right. I didn't see one. I saw one person. I think who would be considered special needs in our country. I think I saw some fairly disturbing uh, examples of people who were disabled that were being used to try to raise money. You know, there were people that we saw that were, you know, disabled on the streets that were actually being held by a person who was using them to try to get people to donate money yep. these are scenes that you'd never see in this country not, not at least on a street in a city here and you just didn't see it you didn't there was no there's no such thing as as wheelchair access I didn't see yeah. that anywhere I didn't see any kind no, because it's just not an issue in the country because I think a lot of the people that end up that they would have that might be put into that category just don't exist in mainstream society. It's a very interesting experience. Mm. It's a very one dimensional
1: view. Everybody looks the same for the most part. And you must have stood out. I mean, Rob is uh, six foot six. Yes. Walking through China. And white. <laughs> and white. Yeah, there's some uh, villages you know. where they never right. saw a white person. I mean, my, my uncle uh, had been uh, there Yeah, too, our uncle is married to a woman from China and he goes over there. He's probably, what, six feet? Yeah, Johnny, Johnny's about six foot. And he's, you know, pretty pot bellied. He's a beautiful guy. You know, and boisterous. Mm-hmm. But when he was over there in, in my aunt's village, they wanted to take pictures with him. Oh, yeah. They'd never seen such such a thing. Absolutely. So, did you touch upon internet freedom and uh, access to information with the, the school while you were over there? Or did that ever come up? Like, how restricted are these kids and what kind of information they can access?
2: They have a lot. They, they, I mean, all of them had iPhones. We didn't have one picture being taken that wasn't on an iPhone. And there were people taking pictures at a, such a pace that. There were pictures taken of you as you walked by, that you weren't. I'm sure there's pictures of our whole group that were put up online that we don't even know were taken never because, seen them. because they were just taken. Won't. And I, so they had that. And uh, but I can tell you my personal experience where I stayed. The only access I had was to email. I had some Gmail access. There's no Facebook. There's no Twitter. There's right. no Instagram. They do have. So that's uh, real. They do have kind of their own version of Facebook, which is their own social network, uh, QQ, and um, they use that. So, I mean, there's there's some other different things that they've attempted to do. So the government's trying to, I think, from what I saw, I think they want it both ways. They really, they're very aware of American culture. They're very aware. There's, There's no mystery in terms of that. In fact, many of them, what I saw, I mean, basketball is incredibly big. Oh, yeah. In that country, and they're very aware of what's happening. Did you
1: ball over there at all?
2: I never got a chance to, no. <laughs> did
1: you ever do any karaoke so, with any blue No, uh, I stu- Lost in translation. The, the, uh, I know stu- stu- that was Japan, the, but the
2: students did. They actually did some of that stuff. The karaoke we, Yeah, school. the adults on the trip, were, we, were, we were kind of under a different schedule, but I know that week we are at the school. You know, it was a very interesting week, and, and you really were going all the time. And I, I remember the uh, food issue came up. I think one of the biggest questions I ever get about my stay there was in terms of the food... I enjoyed it. I actually liked the food a lot, and I, I made a point the whole time I was there. I never used any utensils. I used chopsticks the whole time. I know that sounds very trite, but I made a point when I went. I said oh, that's the their minute... culture,
1: and, and you were you know you were being respectful and Correct. probably practical. chopsticks are fun too. Practically. they're fun. I, mean, <laughs> I, I learned a, how to use chopsticks actually in third grade.
2: It's but a it's a it's definitely a skill, and I can tell you that it's not easy. And I mean, they mean, and they offered silverware. I mean the, the the issue that you realize is when you go there, you realize how accommodating other countries are towards Americans. And I don't know if it's going to be this way in 50 or 60 years, but right now it, it is. I don't think it will be. But right now it is, and, and they learn English. Uh, so I don't. I can probably tell you maybe five or six, maybe seven words in Mandarin. I wouldn't be able to repeat them here just because I, I, I don't know if I could remember You might them. butcher them. <laughs> yeah, I would. And But I can tell you that the I didn't have trouble speaking with anybody. Um, we saw a lot of stuff. You know, Xi'an was probably the most interesting city I went to, and that was the one that was Beijingers considered very rural. But you had people that in, in Xi'an lived in, essentially uh, caves. Some of them have places that are carved out that are summer and winter homes. That are you know the weather. It's a very interesting place, and, and farming was very big. They had a Muslim market. I went to. I tried to get into a Muslim mosque uh, when I was there inadvertently. I just walked in and realized you had to pay. You had to pay to go into. You had the had get into. So a I wash. didn't go in. I didn't want to pay. So I just kind of, kind of politely excused myself. But the woman, and she was fine. She, but she was assuming that I was going to pay. But you walk around some of these places, and it's a very, very different world. Beijing, I will say that the, I think the allure of Americans visiting is starting to wear off in the sense that, even I think about the people that were on the trip I was at in two, 2013. They had been in 08. They had been in 2010 we go into 2013, there are people that have been back since, and from what I've read you know, on blogs and things like that, that just in 10 years, you know, say from now until, you know, like say, 2005, the amount of exposure that people in Beijing have had to Americans and Westerners is unprecedented. There might so be I, some fatigue. I think it's to the point where it's not such a big deal anymore. When we were staying at a hotel, it wasn't that big of a deal. But when we went to Xi'an, it was a huge deal. When we went to schools in Beijing, it was a big deal. But then when we went on the street, eh, it was okay. We've I mean, seen
1: Americans. <laughs> it
2: wasn't that much of a novelty, and I think that's only going to get more and more. You've got, I mean, the former NBA star, Stefan Marbury, is, he plays in China, and he said he's never coming back. Oh, you've wow, got, he's still
1: playing Marbury? Yeah. yeah. He's going to be, what, 40 by now? Eh,
2: I think he's in his 30s. But LeBron James is huge in China. I mean, Kobe Bryant, I think, is probably bigger in China than he is in the United States. So <laughs> right. you've got these people that they worship basketball players. They worship American culture.
1: don't they they love American pop music yeah
2: they really do so basically basically at this
1: point would you say China is just communist light I think
2: so I think they're trying I think the government's probably and this is a purely anecdotal account but I think the government I think is, is really struggling to try to own up to the reality that Economically, they have to be open to different things. They're they going have, to be capitalists. They do, they, and there's no doubt about it. They are about, capitalists. They are. I mean, but in terms of the control, in terms of information, well, the state control, they don't want right. to give that up. And no. I know I can tell you when we but, were at the, um, when we waited in line, probably one of the most stirring things I saw was when we went to Tiananmen Square and we actually saw Mao lying in state oh yeah actually saw so they've out. got the body. It's preserved it's preserved it's just like kind of look
1: it, like Joan Rivers <laughs> a little bit <laughs> look they're not would, Joan Rivers they're I would right? say it was
2: probably a Chinese version of Lennon I, I mean when I oh, when I oh, first yeah. when I first sure w- we were waiting in line and the amount of security that you had to go through to get into this place was unbelievable and we go in and, and there's a lot of military presence but the amount of Mao worship of people that are my age younger kids um is unbelievable, and, and wow. to me, the only conclusion I could take from it was that they're worshiping kind of nostalgically, almost a time in their history where they're looking at with respect. I don't because nobody, at anybody under the age of fifty in China, no, nobody is worshiping the Communist Party it's so much. No, but it's something that they all do. But waiting in line for this this Mao tour, which doesn't happen all the time. And when I walked in, you go in, you don't talk, you don't take pictures, you walk, you turn your head. You look for about five seconds, ten seconds. You turn your head. You walk on. Nobody says a word. How did he look for Chairman Mao? Uh, he looked pretty much the same as probably when he died in the pretty 1970s. Pretty good. They got him he, preserved did, pretty okay. well. He was on a very he was on a crystal case. I like that. But I remember being He's pretty psyched. Yeah, and that's psychedelic. There were two people, uh, very average-looking Chinese men. Probably they looked like they were in their 60s, maybe, who took their hat off, and they. They stopped, and they turned, and they wanted to go up and touch the glass. And I've never seen guards react so strongly. They yanked this guy out of line, threw him out wow. as quick as you could look really? at There was no question. It's like, this guy, you're gone. You're out of here. And I question if an American had done that. I wonder
1: Oof. how he would have reacted.
2: I don't know if he would have done the same thing, because I think it goes back to the whole point where they really want oh, people well, from the outside. They, they want to they want America to come. Right. I think they would okay. have certainly put you away. I don't think they would have reacted you so strongly. He wouldn't have gotten locked up. But I think you might have provided a good example. But I saw, you know, dads with their young children on their shoulders giving a bouquet of flowers to Mao when they'd leave.
1: So there's still a little bit of cult of personality going on with. I think it's the only history. I think Mao. I do,
2: and I think it's the only history that they have. I, I, think, sure. they're, I think they're constructing. They're constructing their own his, history history. And they're constructing their own history. Well, hey, figures. you know,
1: you know, in America, in D.C., you go in the mall. We have all of all of our instruments of war in our past. You can go right and exactly. see it and touch it and go right up live to. The, you go to see the Enola Gay. That's right. We have Mount Rushmore. Yeah, we have all these things. So that, I don't. Uh, I don't think it's so
2: strange. I, I guess no, to I me, don't, I don't either. But I think it's a country that's kind of wrestling with their own history. In some ways, you think about how long they've been around thousands of years. But at the yeah. same time, their their most recent history is actually very, very new. Right. They don't have a lot of history and right. there's really no mythology so I think they're trying to probably I, my opinion is I think they're trying to create their own
1: yeah no, I, I like that I'm, I'm fascinated by former heads of state can, still lying in state you got Lenin. I'm pretty sure Kim Jong-il his Kim body's Jung, yeah, preserved. Kim Jong-il is yeah I oh, think in yeah, Asian, his father North Korea and Kim Il-sun mm. I think is yeah the one who died in the early 90s yeah the grandfather, the grandfather. Of the leader. yeah the first one Eun's grandfather right and correct. his father I think correct. they're both yeah in and the old one is the eternal leader. Well, he's still Kim, technically.
2: Kim Il-sung is still technically the head of state. He forever.
1: Right. For, declared that after after he died, right? Yeah. That's why
2: Christopher Hitchens has his famous declaration of North Korea being a necrocracy. Ah.
1: Oh, Hitch, we miss you. <laughs> I never heard that one before. Hitch, we miss you. <laughs> I, I, I would argue that these people are over there. <laughs> they're worshiping a corpse. That's, <laughs> that's
2: I, th- I don't think he could have said it better. That's
1: probably, <laughs> no,
2: I think that was. You yeah. met Hitchens,
1: Eric. I did meet Christopher Hitchens. That was... Uh, Could have
2: a whole podcast on him.
3: We,
1: That's another show. Yeah, we're going to definitely bring up Hitch. He's one of my heroes. I got mm-hmm. to meet him in uh, summer of 2010. It was one of his last appearances before you find out he had cancer. And... Um, hmm. Yeah, it was awesome. Ironically, the event was at a synagogue. I met Christopher Hitchens at a synagogue in Washington, D.C. Well, oh, he would have wanted it that way. Yeah. oh, yeah, was, And there was no deathbed conversion. No. If anyone says that I've made a deathbed conversion, <laughs> surely it's the chemotherapy coursing through my brain. It's <laughs> altered my perception on reality. It will not be me speaking. It will be some form of me in a medically induced coma.
2: Yeah. I, I think Christopher Hitchens... D- will. You know, if you want to go into a kind of a YouTube stupor, is just look up oh, Christopher Hitchens' his take on. down. You uncork some of Scotch, man. you get
1: on YouTube time travel. Mm. Hitchens is one of my go tos. And the problem,
2: you know, what I find with him is that one of the best books he wrote was Mortality, which is really his book. Mm. His, his uh, last memoir. book, it was his memoir about him essentially dying from cancer. And right. I think one of the, the best parts of the book was the epilogue that's written by his wife that she wrote and it was probably the best part of the book but it really to me it was a book where you could see his skills eroding as the book went on yeah because he just he was dying and i think um and and i know
1: hitch's only regret was that he was dying before henry kissinger and the pope so he couldn't pen i couldn't couldn't pen the obituary for the vulgar villains that we know is the pope (laughs) i think was talking about ratzinger yes the 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 nazi you know uh, uh, Hitler Youth, youth. yes. Massacre yeah. was Hitler yeah. Youth. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was much a, he was a okay. It was a youth. It Doesn't look that great on a resume, but you can kind of two youths with the Nazi you know? party. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Kissinger. We could do a whole show about Kissinger and his crimes. Kissinger is now ninety, 90. years old, I believe. Hmm. And he, he said he's endorsing Jeb Bush. Hmm well maybe Liz- lizards one... love company <clears throat> speaking of uh you know washington insiders and uh uh reptilians what about uh, house of cards yeah we got to get to uh, house of cards so rob fascinating three. stuff about china man that that that's so cool oh thanks that's... i,
2: I it, like i said I, th- I just think you know certainly there's a lot of americans that can talk about going there but it's still a place that a lot of people still haven't been i hope right. to, i'm i'm Hoping that um, I'm going to probably go back, go back. in the next couple of years. So I'm hoping.
1: Do a basketball exchange program like <coughs> Dennis Rodman did in yeah. North Korea. Except uh, I going to play basketball. I'm the ambassador. I'll play basketball with these people. Did Did, did they get any hostages released on the count of Dennis Rodman? He uh, did not. Was no. anything constructed done? They did not. Other than he brought a signed basketball from Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan to the leader. Yeah, I think well, that's it, it. I mean, it's fascinating, no, no, man. I
2: don't think there was any hostage exchange.
1: So no, nothing, the, nothing the last can... person to get hostages on North Korea, Bill Clinton. Correct. And then before him, maybe Bill uh, Richardson. We have uh, one of our best friends is actually going to North Korea, going to North Korea in, April, in April. April. Uh, for, oh, that's, that's pretty fascinating. For the Pyongyang Marathon, as well as the celebration, celebration of uh, um, Kim, uh, Kim Jong-il. Uh, well, no, Un. Oh, ooh, this is the... Oh, the current... Song, no, Kim Il-sung. The, oh, they're the, celebrating the, him? The, the, f- the, the founder. The okay. Kim Il-sung, Kim Jong-il, Kim Jong-un. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Gotta get, get your Kims right, man. That's right, you Don't me. mess them up. It's not Bill Clinton. Is that Kim, which Kim is that I was with? <laughs> you might you <laughs> might end up in a camp shoveling. But, I, uh, it,
0: it would
2: it would be interesting to see. Would you know, now that's a fascinating trip, North Korea, because I would be willing to bet, and I, I could be wrong, but I would be willing to bet once again there would be quite a effort made to try to make. Oh, oh, comfortable. Oh, even more trips so than China, are choreographed and scripted
1: yeah. there. Yeah. yeah, there's only certain places, obviously, Americans can go to. Exactly. And people don't realize this. A lot of Westerners and Americans visit North Korea every year. 1,200 a year, maybe? Maybe more. Maybe more than I that. I think. And he, our friend Justin, we're going to do a show with him. He's going to give us this whole recap. Mm-hmm. Um, he's going there with a tourist company. And they're, I believe he's made a, a deal with them to uh, uh, film and, uh, you know... Edit some stuff. But the government knows he's coming. They know what he's doing. And mm-hmm. you can film this. You can photograph this. Well, you, you this have is, a handler with you know, the whole time you're there. There's a state handler. There's it, only so. one hotel where the Westerners stay. And he's going to North Korea uh, by way of China. Hmm. Flying he, he, to Beijing? He actually told me he's more afraid to fly to China by himself. <laughs> really? Than going to North Korea. So. Well, I can
2: tell you, getting into to China was actually much easier than I thought. Coming back to the U.S. was
1: very difficult. Yeah. It
2: was tough to get in. Oh, those back Cuban
1: cigars you tried to smuggle. <laughs> coming back to the U.S. from Canada is going to be difficult. Hey, I, I, I will admit exactly. I smuggled Cubans um, from Sweden. Here's what I did. Um, I took, <laughs> I bought two packs of cigars. I bought one pack of um, cigars made in, um, what country was it? It was either Colombia or uh, Venezuela. And then I bought a pack of Cubans, and I switched the wrappers on the Cubans. I took the uh, like Colombian label and put on the Cubans. So I got to customs in Philly when I came back from Sweden, and the woman at TSA was like, "What are those cigars? Where are those from?" I'm like, "Oh, these are these are Colombian made." And she looked at them had a Colombian. They were really Cubans. Hmm. So that's my little that's my little <laughs> that's story. A, that's a good how-to. Yeah, no. If you ever ever find yourself in Sweden, you can buy as many Cubans as you want and uh, that's smuggle a good life them, hack Smuggle right them there. back into the USA. I'm a smuggler. Yes. Call me a smuggler. <laughs> So yeah, we, uh, we wanted to talk about House of Cards. How, sure. exce- how excited are you for season three? What do you thinks going to happen? I mean Frank Underwood last time we saw him, he just uh, he knocked on the Oval Office desk and there he was.
2: One of the best season enders I've seen. Oh I, I, I mean I love the show I, like a lot of people do. I mean it's, um, I think it's more that you can see a show in a very intense time period and also a show that doesn't have commercials. Uh, to me, oh. the format of it I don't House of Cards wouldn't exist if it was on another format it wouldn't have nearly the that's same true. power i mean i think spacey and the rest of the actors that are on the show give it lights know, out oh it's the casting is phenomenal the way it's filmed i mean i like the intro music i like the way it's done it's just but i don't i think it's interesting because now he's president and now we're going to actually see are at some point run? i think he has to be there has to be some pushback on him oh and,
1: there's got to be i mean you've gotten to the ultimate zenith of, yeah. of power in america that's right the world arguably what do, you, what do you do now? Where do you go now? You don't aspire to anything else. No. Now you know, it's are you going to be Pope? A, well, now you want to be Pope after president? It, you know?
2: Now it's about holding power. And, and not that,
1: letting those things that got you to power come back and bite you and come out.
2: So I think inevitably that's got to be the the story arc, I think, of this season.
1: Do you so. think Stamper's dead? You look pretty dead, man. I, I Mike, Mike claims he I, was twitching.
2: But the problem with that is <laughs> I thought... I never thought he was alive. And so when when I started reading stuff <laughs> very good like Jack Skeleton. Well when I started reading things online after, as I think everybody did as a fan of the show, you just mm. go and start reading stuff mm. online once you finish.
1: Well did that come down. It's yeah. Like a heroin addict, you're like, Oh You've, the oh, withdrawal. I need anything anything I can get.
2: So you gotta read stuff online. And so I think I, I never even considered that he was alive until people started saying, "Oh, well, is he alive? Might so claim I claim guess for shaking. me, this, is, like, a whole, this yeah. is a whole new world. This I don't is, know.
1: This is uncharted. I saw a twitch. Do you, do you want him to be alive, Rob? I kind of do. I do. I, I do. think
2: I, anything that can add a little bit more discomfort to uh, the underworld world is probably advisable. Yeah. And, I mean, okay.
1: and, and, and I lived in Washington for almost a year, and I obviously have a background in politics. Mm. And people ask me, Eric, is this anything near reality? And, and what politics and Congress is like, I said, yeah, actually, the reality's worse. This is light. This is light. In the this, Underwood, is, this is kid gloves. I don't know if you touched on it, the Underwood character is kind of partially based on Bill Clinton and... Lyndon, uh, Johnson. Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson, of course, has a trail of... Uh, Lyndon Johnson may have had a uh, hand in having his own sister murdered. A lot of people don't hmm. know that. Jo- uh, Josephia Johnson in Texas, back in the... This goes back to the 40s and 50s. There's eight murders um, in, Texas. in Texas when Johnson was... Uh, Johnson started in the House. Mm-hmm. If correct me if I'm it wrong. He was from Texas. He was in the House, and then he was a senator, and there was a whole... Controversy about the box. What is it? ballot Box Forty Seven. That was called or something. Forty Eight. Yeah. His yeah. They, they, they stolen they votes. Stuffed, they stuffed the, stuffed the ballots. Dead men voting. So then got gotten in the Senate and um, you know became a kingmaker in the Senate. Obviously in Texas politics a kingmaker and then in the Senate, and then you know for him you know, becoming vice president was almost uh, a step backwards because mm. you're figurehead. You don't really have any power. He it's had the real power in the Senate. Hey, you're like, you're, yeah, exactly. You go to funerals. You're you know. Joe Biden. You're whispering sweet nothings into everyone's ears. Yeah, creeping out <laughs> young girls. And um, That is disturbing stuff to see. So, I mean, I didn't really realize this stuff, but uh, I've been really looking into it. And maybe you could call it alternate history. Maybe you could call it, um, I don't know what you could call it, but, I mean, there's some things that are just not explained mm. about... Lyndon Johnson's connections to a bunch of murders in Texas. I I
2: think, yeah, I mean, I think when you look at a show like House of Cards and if he's basing, if Kevin Spacey Mm -hmm. was, I mean, I think, I couldn't imagine anybody else playing that role at this point, but if he's basing this off of partially Bill Clinton, and and Johnson which is pretty clear, the Clinton aspect is pretty obvious. Oh
1: God, it's there. Well, he's friends with Bill Clinton too, with Zoe Barnes.
3: (laughs)
2: He tells a funny story about him going into a Starbucks with Bill Clinton, which is, which was quite interesting after he was president, and how, you know, Bill Clinton said, "We're just going to make a tw- quick stop and pick yeah, up a coffee, just
1: just a, just a normal stop."
2: He said, "You know, two hours later, they're leaving. <laughs> Coffee's cold." Yeah, because uh, you know, Bill Clinton really he likes the celebrity status.
1: Oh, he eats it up. I just yeah. watched a um, sp- a uh, thing on YouTube. Uh, you know how Paul McCartney cooked up the whole concert for New York after the nine eleven mm-hmm. attacks in New York. Um, Bill Clinton showed up in Paul McCartney's dressing room, you know, and went in there and mugged. James Taylor was in there, Paul McCartney, Jim Carrey, uh, you know, you name it. And Bill Clinton was sharing an anecdote about being in Martha's Vineyard, and uh, I, was, I was on the vineyard, and the, the uh, first mate of my shit was James Taylor. Yeah, James. You know, he was, like, talking about it. it was, like, the greatest day of his life. So Bill Clinton, he, said, he definitely eats that up. He eats up g- the celebrity status. Is he get- ready to be the first man? Well, it, it depends happen. on the, intern, the interns he can get. You know, what, what, what does a first lady get for interns? What can a first man get for interns? I don't think he gets any interns. But uh, the phenomena of House <laughs> of Cards is great because, I mean, if anything, um, you know, I'm a political nerd and I've always been into politics, but this also gets other people, you know, people in my generation, millennials who otherwise wouldn't be interested in politics or even paid any mind, even though it's a fictitious creation and it's, you know, not really based in reality, it still gets them interested. Absolutely. In politics, which is good.
2: I can tell you, I've had, you know, teaching, I've had AP classes, government classes that are made up of seniors, and the amount of attention Mm. that that series gets is pretty incredible. And it's, you know, it's something that they watch, and certainly we don't talk a lot about it in class, but the idea is that you've got a series like this, which gets it pretty well in terms of even just capturing the feel of that city.
1: Right. In procedure. I mean, he starts his whip.
2: There's there's a lot of really geeky stuff in that show. Exactly. They, they, that you you can't just tune in like a soap opera and just kind of watch it and think. Oh, no, you I don't pay really attention. Have
1: to, you got to really, if you want to get the full experience, you really have to pay attention. Exactly. to Exactly. And you know, people who are not really versed in politics saw something from that show and went and researched it and dug into it and got a greater understanding of our political process. I mean,
2: if it wasn't for the content, it could be. It would be a really good teaching material, but obviously (laughs) it's just not going to happen. Here's
1: how corruption works, kids.
2: Well, there's some great two- or three-minute segments where they talk about the vice president's role. They talk about congressional committees. Right, what a whip does. What a whip does. And I would argue that those are the the ways that you can actually get those things across. But obviously, because of the content of the show, you can't do it.
1: Well, it's more interesting to do that than to read a lot of a textbook. Yes. You know, so... But anyways, yeah, House of Cards Season 3. For those of you who never watch House of Cards, I highly recommend you do you it. You have two days to binge on Season 1 and 2. Yep, it's and only I, 26 episodes. You can do it. I was late to the game. Eric was uh, espousing this show to me, uh, I don't know, two years ago, and I never watched it. You know, I am I have other shows that I like, Sons of Anarchy, Walking Dead. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love obviously love politics like Eric, but uh, I, I think I watched the first two seasons within like two or three weeks oh it's, so it's phenomenal. I didn't have to wait a whole year no like right so, you so it's t- talking to, you mentioned AP history classes I wanted mm. to pick your brain on this Rob because um, you were a social studies and history teacher Oklahoma wanting to change uh, or gut the direction of AP history mm. courses being taught I mean what, what's your take on that
2: I think it's I, I think the AP aspect of it you know the whole idea of advanced placement classes I think is a legitimate one but um, it's I mean especially with college tuition the way it is that you got students who can essentially take a college-level course. And get a credit. They can opt for under 100 bucks. You can take the test. You can get the credit. I, I don't think anybody can argue with that. But in this case, you've got the Oklahoma State Legislature having a problem with the curriculum that's being changed by the AP U.S. History for that particular course, which the AP U.S. History course is one of the really cornerstones of the whole AP world. It really is. It's one of the most popular courses. It's been around the longest. But I would say the concern I have is that I think it really misses the point because I really think when it comes to this idea about the AP U.S. history, I think what they're really talking about is just how American history is taught in general. And And that's been going on for decades. I mean, that's nothing new. I mean, you talk about putting you know, under God and the pledge in the 1950s. I mean, this is something that's been going on for a long time. The AP aspect of it is actually very tiny. And I think if you really look at the actual stuff that they're talking about in this particular bill proposal, it's not incredibly radical. And one of the the issues that I think gets ignored in all this is that when you look at the right, in terms of how they approach um, teaching US history, the idea would be to kind of accent the positive. And to really try to play that end up. My
1: country, right or wrong?
2: Well, and the, the term that gets thrown around a lot is this idea of American exceptionalism. exceptionalism. Yeah, which I think is something that I think we have to be wary of. But but then you go to the other side, which is you know kind of the traditional left side, and then you get into this where it becomes a laundry list of all the crimes that the United States has committed. Everything bad we've ever done going and back the, the to slaughtering the slaughtering of and, the natives. And that's a short-sighted way to go about it. So I think what you end up getting is this kind of... The, this really intense debate from two very, very invested players on the right and the left. Then in the middle, you've got people who just want to find out what happened. Hmm. And you've got your average student who comes in and says, well, I just want to know about American history. And I think the way to do it would be to look at it. I think the comment you made before, warts and all,
1: warts and all,
2: is to really look at all these things and use it as a way of teaching just how far you've come as a country. I mean, sure. if, if you think about the United States as a country, you're talking about a pretty incredible experiment. And you talk about Christopher Hitchens. I mean, he's a guy that I think knew more about the U.S. than a lot of Americans oh, do. He, was, he,
1: and, lo- he loved this country. And
2: I think one of the points that I always find, one of the more compelling points that he always made was talking about the importance of teaching the founders and teaching the documents and teaching the founding of the country, which actually, it, it sounds crazy to say this, but I think it actually gets undertaught because I think we just assume people know it.
1: Well, we showed the patriot.
2: <laughs> and people don't know it. And so you really think about you've got a country that starts and you've got this document that's written by Jefferson, the Declaration of Independence, hmm. formally sets us on our way. Then you get the Constitution. Then you've got a Civil War just decades later. Yeah, and then not
1: you, even right.
2: Yeah, you. Right. and then all of a sudden you've got slavery ending. You've got oh, a Civil man. War. The, the amount of stuff that the U.S. has actually dealt with. In such a short period in of the time. Is unbelievable in oh, the Industrial Revolution. the industrial revolution. So I think it, it seems interesting to me that when you've got people that will critique – the so-called liberal teaching of history, which is kind of the revisionist idea, saying, well, you know, the U.S. is actually a really bad country. Like Howard Zinn or Noam Chomsky. Yeah, which two guys I really respect a lot, but the problem is that if you go that route, you really end up leaving. You kind of, I think you're giving today's generation kind of short treatment because you're not really allowing them to even be proud of the country. You're just shitting on everything, and that
1: that doesn't do a service to anybody.
2: There's a a lot of things that I think we have to actually be willing to step forward. I, I think we're in a time period now where we're so busy apologizing for being Americans that right we're kind of getting to this point where we're we're running around in this world apology to our identity where we're not even willing to step up and say, "Well, you're actually Americans because we're supposed to say, "Well, I know we've screwed up the last few years well." I would say that I think you should be proud of these things, but at the same time, acknowledge slavery, acknowledge the Japanese internment, acknowledge yep. the civil rights movement. And yep. If anything, it makes I think the country look even better
1: because you've struggled with these. Things. You got to understand if you're going to want to know where we're going, totally. you got to know where we've been. Exactly, and that's it. And the problem with this AP thing is, as I said earlier, it's political, man. You got politicians who have an have an agenda. They got donors, and some of these donors could be far right Christian fundamentalists. Some of these donors could be liberal. Types who who Sean Penn types who you know mm-hmm. blame America first <laughs> yeah. right, so where's where's the middle ground you know we got to find middle ground and you know that's obviously the job of a teacher is mm-hmm. to find find the middle ground and weed weed through the bullshit and and you know do the greatest service to the students that you can do without it be being too political and too politically charged. And and you know catering to a special interest or right. you know political donors, Try so to it's, leave your fingerprints of your opinion there, right? To it's hard. Right? It's hard to do that. That's why I couldn't do it. It's hard. I couldn't. What? I honestly couldn't do it. You well, guys, I, and I teachers.
2: Think, well, I think part of the problem too is that when you get into this, you start thinking about who, whose history is it. And I think one of the one of the reasons why Howard's in. Became so popular with a lot of teachers, especially if you look probably 80s and 90s. I mean, he's dead now, but the idea of his, he was really the first historian that really took on that kind of traditional view of history True. the way it had been taught. And there's a lot of teachers in classrooms today that have been schooled on Howard Zinn. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But the only issue that I, and I, I loved his Zinn when I read him, it was very exciting. People's history? say it's one of the best history books I've ever read, but it still is one source. That's true. Many it's, and the, one and, exactly. and, it's one man. Exactly. It's
1: one man with a worldview.
2: And he wrote a very particular perspective saying we're going to teach history from the loser's perspectives. you will all do respect to the term losers, but that's what he's trying to say is that we're going to write it from the, the view of, of the oppressed.
1: Right. History hangs losers. That's right. The winners. And you
2: know? let's face it, there was a real need for that because for years and years and years you had this kind of version of history that really did ignore huge <laughs> groups of people. So you needed somebody to come along and say, you know what, there's other stuff to talk about here, and I think you've got to talk about this in a, in a lot greater detail than you are. The problem is now it then becomes uncool to talk about America as a great country. Right. the Good it, things we've done. And, and the problem with that is I think when you start ignoring that stuff, you start really losing sight of what makes the U.S. a pretty unique... It, there's no question, it's t- in terms of world history, the United States is an incredibly unique and important
1: country. Therein lies the beauty and the brilliance of this um, project... Um experiment, experiment. we're young we're where such we, a young we country we can actually exactly. acknowledge our wrongs mm-hmm. and we can celebrate our, our the great that we've done mm-hmm. and um, uh, celebrate diversity because we're a diverse nation all together at the same time and that's pretty cool there's not a lot of countries around the world where you can do that I would where put, it's on equal footing
2: well I would put it in a, in a real technical term you've got a country that in 1865 outlawed slavery and then in 1965, is actually instituting a Voting Rights voting Act. Rights. So you've got now 100 years. Under Lyndon
1: Johnson, by the way, folks. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Johnson did one good thing. Okay. He had that in the pipe, okay. though, before they snuffed him out. both Gulf of wasn't so great, but this was good.
2: But the point is, you've got a century, which in anybody who's alive on the earth, a century is a long time. It's it's multi generations. But the point is, in terms of world history, that's oh, it's that's a, fabulous, a blink. It's a, it's a blink of the bucket. eye. It's a grain of sand that. on a beach. Yeah. And if you look at a country to be able to actually end slavery and enact voting rights within a hundred year period, that's mind boggling. And then to and so this could keep on going. I guess the point here is that I think in our efforts to try to include. So many different people in teaching American history. What we've actually done is we've kind of forgotten the ability to be able to say why we're actually an important country to talk about. We're actually not even, you know, there's things in our country that other countries would be crowing about. On there's no other country in the world that would be apologizing for what they've done. No, nobody. But the United States seems to feel like, well, we've been kind of a bad country. So England's we've got to not apologize. apologizing. Other countries would not apologize for anything, and, and I would argue that if you give Russia, China, any of these countries, if they were, if they had the same foothold on the world that the United States is, there is no way they would give it up. They would. There's no way they would give it up. So no, I think to, they would that's, want to. Expand. That's a really good point.
1: And so, that's I, a good it, point. so that I think
2: as a country, that's something we have to wrestle with. I mean, because it doesn't make it good. I'm just saying that that's the fact. Yeah. is we've got this. It's a reality. It's a reality that as a country, I think we've got to figure out. And we, you've got a new generation of of people coming up that have to figure this out. The country's not the same as it was in 1945. No, no. no. Not 1965, 75. So. You're
1: absolutely right. I mean, it's something we wrestle with, you know, because I you make really great points, you know, and, and um, I've certainly looked at all the, you know, bad things that have been done in our name, and, and we need to own them and absolutely. discuss them and, and be up front about them. But then it also you got to ask to what end were those bad things done, and you got to measure it during the times. Like today I was researching... Um, the uh, coup of our Ben's in Guatemala mm. in the fifties, which was a CIA mm. operation called Operation PB Success, where you had um, E. Howard Hunt, uh, David Morales, Frank Sturgis, some of the dudes who come up in Watergate were involved. And in... Bay of o- Pigs, right? Bay of Pigs were involved in overthrowing our Ben's, who was democratically elected in Guatemala, who oversaw a great agrarian reform, gave a lot of the land to the peasants to farm and be subsidy farmers. That pissed off United Fruit Company which the Dulles brothers had stake in. That's right. You have Alan Dulles, director of the CIA. You have uh, his brother, Secretary John Foster Dulles. Secretary of State. So in their eyes, you know, they justified that, that, well, perhaps Guatemala it's a puppet state of the Soviet Union and communism. So America first, America exceptionalism, we are going to overthrow our Benz because he's a communist puppet. Or most which, 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 bu- which was bullshit. It was couldn't be further from the truth. Exactly. But if you can put it into the context of the time, in the state of mind of our leaders, you can understand why, why coups like that would happen or why America would think it's okay for them to go down to Guatemala and overthrow a democratically elected government. Well, not only that, but the three of us can sit here tonight drinking beers, talking about whatever the hell we want to talk about in this country, uh, which tonight is brought to you by Stella Artois and uh, Bud heavy Harpo and IPA. Uh, are any of those beers made in America anymore? I don't know. but <laughs> That's a good question. But I really, I really am uh, just so happy that I was born here in this country, mm-hmm. and, and I can express myself and say whatever I want without any fear of repercussion. And I don't take that for granted ever.
2: Well, and I think that's the, the, I guess, you know, the fear that I have is that I think in, in, in our efforts to try to make America kind of accountable for its, its past, which has been spotty, there's no question about it. Bloody we, and spotty, we, yeah. we also ignore an incredible foundation that was pretty remarkable and unique, that you had some really flawed individuals that managed to create this democracy and this republic that is still around. And I think it's something to be proud of. And I, I, I worry that we're raising a generation of people that are kind of being told that they shouldn't be proud of it anymore, that it's uncool to say, well, America's a great country. It's going to be their country. Right, and, to be and,
1: pessimistic and about it and, and think of the worst.
2: You live in a very open, progressive, free society, and that's something that you cannot take for granted. And I, does that make you the greatest country in the world? I'm not sure, but I think it certainly is something to be proud of. And I think it's something that you, I think people, are, Americans are going to have to check in and kind of recommit to that whole idea.
1: Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And we, we have people coming from all over the world to be here. We've had people who have given their mm-hmm. lives trying to come here Correct. and make the trek, even from... Mexico in the south that's right and
2: but I do think sometimes we I think we go out of our way to try to to almost accommodate people to the point where we're not willing to even kind of own up to our own past and say hey you know this is what we started these are our, our ideals we haven't always met them but you know what they're there and sometimes when we you know it's kind of the idea where I think a lot of history now is looked at from swings and misses you know, you look at the U.S. at bats, you think, okay, swings and misses, <laughs> and I think, <laughs> yeah, it's and, I, and I think America swings big most every time, and I think a lot of times it misses. But I think we've also actually connected quite a few times, and it's been pretty positive. My worry is that we don't swing big anymore I mean, as a country. Okay. I, I, I worry that we're not trying. You know, I think about going to space. I think, you know, I think about space exploration. I think about these really big, big things that I, I, I think we used to do. I don't. I'd like to see our new uh, Marshall Plan.
1: Yeah,
2: you, know, you think about the Marshall Plan at the end of World War II. I don't. You think about NASA going to the moon. I my worry is that we don't do things All, like that. Anymore. What if we, we, we had? We'll be since, a leader. Yeah. What if we yeah. had?
1: What about taking the lead on you know exactly getting rid of nukes? Imagine imagine if tomorrow Obama scheduled a press conference and said we're getting rid of nukes. You know, or we're pardoning. We're going to pardon Chelsea Manning. Right, or something or <laughs> yeah. Snowden or... But, yeah. Right, or, mm-hmm. something, something bold Julia like Sondre. that that shows real leadership, though.
2: Although opening up Cuba is, I think, a big
1: move. Yes, that's, that's a very good... Uh, something uh, we talked about in your class 11 correct. years ago. Yeah, yeah the embargo. You, got,
2: you guys actually asked uh, then-candidate John Kerry about that. Wow.
1: We did. A, what a memory Hawkins yeah. has. <laughs> We did. We did ask Kerry about Mr. that. I
2: remember he landed at the high school via helicopter. It was one of the best things I ever saw.
1: Oh, that was awesome! Yeah, John Kerry came yeah. into our high school. I think he was freshly Botox that day too. I and think he we looked so. pretty I good. Think so he was <laughs> Botox a, and Heinz maybe, ketchup. If you guys want to keep going, yeah. So, do we? Yeah, we'll uh, go. Yeah, uh, yeah, do we, we'll go? Do we have anything else, or do we want to wrap it up with a song, yeah. or, or uh, <laughs> any final any final thoughts, or? Well, yeah, and we we, t- we touched on a lot, and um, you know, it's 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 uh, it's obvious that history is very important to this crowd here, and um, you know, I recommend our listeners to, to look into anything that we were talking about and uh, do some research and uh, put down the Kardashians for five minutes. <laughs> um, but not House of Cards. No, no don't House, stop watching. I don't that. House no, of Cards is uh, is something everyone, every household. I would. I would. It's uh, Kevin Spacey trying to educate. Yeah, he's teaching he's Kevin Spacey civics course, you know, yeah. condensed into 13 hours, you That's know.
2: Right. <laughs> to the young
1: adult crowd. That's pretty good. <laughs> well, we uh, we thank you very much, Robert, for coming on. Oh, and, thanks for and, having me. And, I enjoyed uh, it. I mean, we spent half the show gushing over Bob Dylan because Rob okay. and I are, are such huge. <laughs> That's Dylan, what we do. We could have done I could. There's no net neutrality before. around here. We no. talk about whatever we want to talk about. Absolutely. So... Uh, Thank you so much for coming on and and sharing uh, your experiences with us and uh, your art, and uh, we'll do it again sometime. All right, thanks a lot, guys. The book is called uh, American Dreamland. author is Robert Huckins. You can find it on Amazon and any other distributor online of books. We'll post uh, your articles. You publish articles every week, and you have another uh, collection of poems and and work called Flatlander, which Mm -hmm. we didn't get to, but... We'll post it all on Jackman Radio on Facebook. And as always, I'm your host, Eric Jackman, signing off. I'm Mike Jackman, uh, and Aaron LaFond didn't quite join us as much tonight because we had our he was guest. Ad he was ad hoc. And uh, Robert, any final words or plug before we go to Maggie's Farm?
2: No, thanks for having me. Keep history alive.
1: That's right. Cheers. Right, party in the USA.
0: Behind pa. She's 68 but she says she's 54 I ain't gonna work for Maggie's Ma no more Let's